Andy, thank you. And let me say thank you, First Baptist Church, for loving Southeastern Seminary so well. It's a delight to partner with such a wonderful church and the Great Commission and in getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Join me again in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Sent to serve. Why did Jesus come? Several years ago, John Piper wrote a little book that's very powerful entitled 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I'm not going to share all 50 of them, but several of them stand out, I believe, for our instruction this morning. Why did Jesus come to die? To absorb the wrath of God, to achieve his own resurrection from the dead, to show his own love for us, to take away our condemnation, to heal us from moral and physical sickness, to reconcile us to God, to free us from the slavery of sin, to enable us to live for Christ and not ourselves, to free us from bondage to the fear of death, to unleash the power of God in the gospel, to show that the worst evil is meant by God for good. And then three in particular, I think, are relevant to our passage this morning. He came to become a ransom for many, to call us to follow his example of lowliness and costly love, and to ransom people from every tribe and language and nation. Mark chapter 8 through chapter 10 is probably the most important passage in all the Bible when it comes to the issue of discipleship. Back in chapter 8, Jesus has told us, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then for those three chapters, he develops in greater detail what it means to truly follow Jesus. Now, it's very interesting. All three chapters, Mark 8, 9, and 10, follow a very uh, distinctive pattern. First, Jesus will make a prediction about his death. Secondly, and immediately, the disciples will say something stupid. It's like they didn't hear him, they didn't get it, but they will say something that's really, really dumb. And we're going to see the climax of that in just a moment. And then thirdly, Jesus will give them a lesson on true discipleship, service, and spiritual greatness. And in many ways, all of the gospel of Mark is pointing to the passage that we're examining this morning, in particular, verse 45, where Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So what we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus tells us specifically why he came, and then he is going to give us a pattern for what it really means to be a disciple, and indeed, God sends us just like he sent his son. There are four truths I want to walk through this text this morning and show you that again naturally arise out of what the Holy Spirit inspired uh, the, the, the author Mark to write for us today. Number one, we must always consider the cost of being a servant. We must always consider the cost of being a servant. Look at verse 32 through verse 34. And they were on the road. Literally, they were on the way, and they were going up to Jerusalem. Of course, you always go up to Jerusalem because it is up a mountain. 
And Jesus was walking ahead of them. He was setting the pace. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to do. And he was leading the way. And the disciples were stunned. The text says they were amazed. And indeed, some who followed him were afraid. Uh, Perhaps they recognized that he was hated greatly in Jerusalem, and that to go to Jerusalem during the time of the Passover would be a a very dangerous time. They didn't know all that it would entail, but they were uh, unsettled. Uh, They were not comfortable. And taking the twelve, the twelve disciples aside, time for some private teaching and private instruction again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus has already predicted his death in chapter 8. He did so again in chapter 9. But now he gives the most detailed description of what will happen to him when he moves to Jerusalem during the Passover. He says, verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. By the way, this is the first time he explicitly says that he is going to die in Jerusalem. You may anticipate it, you may see it coming, but this is the first time he overtly tells them where he will die. We're going up to Jerusalem, and and note that he addresses eight different things that are going to happen. Number one, the Son of Man, hang on to that title for later, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. Number two, they will condemn him to death. Number three, they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. Number four, they will mock him. Number five, they will spit on him. Number six, they will flog him. Number seven, they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus knows specifically what is going to happen. Jesus has no doubt about his destiny, and yet he has set his heart and set his mind to go, counting the cost of being a servant. In fact, if you want to understand these verses in their fullness, go back and read Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, and chapter 50, and especially Isaiah chapter 53, and you get a picture of what Jesus understood was going to be his destiny. In fact, the phrases that you find here just seem to leap out of that Old Testament prophecy. And what we need to understand is this, following in the footsteps of Jesus as our master and our Lord, when we consider being a servant, we must always count the cost. Andy mentioned a moment ago that I have been at Southeastern now more than 17 years. I came in January of 2004. And a few months later, I received a phone call uh, informing me that four of our wonderful missionaries with the IMB had brutally, been brutally murdered in Iraq. In fact, five were wounded and four died. Uh, one survived. And those four, two of them were North Carolinians. In fact, two of them were graduates of Southeastern Seminary, Larry and Jean Elliott. Larry and Jean had been missionaries for almost two decades in Central America, and it was time to retire. But Larry, in particular, did not believe that God has a retirement plan for God's people. Oh, you may shift what you do, but God's people don't retire. When it's time for you to retire, you're out of here, okay? 
And so he did not believe it was time to retire, and they became aware of the fact that there was a job opening in Iraq that fit perfectly uh, his gifts and skills. And so Larry and Gene went to Iraq, and they were there about a year, and they were brutally murdered. Well, I received the phone call and was also informed, and I did not know it because I'd only been in Wake Forest a few months, that their son was a member of the church that Charlotte and I attend, Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. And so I called their son, and I got him on the phone, and I said, Look, I just want you to know at the seminary that, that we are praying for you all, and we're heartbroken over what happened to your mom and dad, and I just want to know how you guys are doing. And uh, he said, well, well, Dr. Aiken, actually, we're doing okay. Uh, we're crying a lot, and, and our hearts are broken, but we're also rejoicing. Uh, because mom and dad are where they've always wanted to be, there with Jesus. And then he told me something that has really stuck with me now all these, now almost 18 years. He said, uh, uh, Brother Danny, I got an email from an atheist. And he actually wrote me to express his condolences over what happened to mom and dad. But at the end of his email, he said this to me. Isn't it a shame that your mom and dad died for no good reason? He said, Dr. Aiken, I didn't get angry. I mean, he's an atheist. Uh, And so I wrote him back. And I expressed my uh, thanks to him. And uh, but then I said, you are wrong about one thing. My mom and dad did not die for no good reason. And then he said, I wrote this to him, Dr. Aiken. I said, you know, my mom and dad had such a confidence in God's plan for their lives that had they known in advance that going to Iraq would have meant their death, they would have still gone anyway. I thought about that many times because I've wondered if that were true for me. If I knew in advance that serving the Lord Jesus would cost me greatly. If I knew in advance that being faithful to his calling in my life would involve imprisonment and maybe even my death, would I still go anyway? Because I have that much confidence in his plan and purpose for my life. Brothers and sisters, you need to count the cost of following Jesus. You need to count the cost of being a servant. For some of us, It may not demand a whole lot. For some of us, it may demand everything just like him. You must consider the cost of being a servant. But number two, you must also consider the challenge of being a servant. When you read verses 35 through 40, you're almost blown away at the, uh, what what word do I want to use here? The total, uh, oh goodness, stupidity, uh, out-of-touchness, if that's a word, of the disciples. Because Jesus has just told us, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be brutally mistreated, and I'm going to die. And it's almost like they weren't listening. Or my, I'm trying to be fair here. My, my suspicion is, when Jesus said what he said in verses 32 through 34, the disciples were at least thinking, ah, there he goes again, talking in a parable. There he goes again talking in these kind of ways that, you know, I'm not really sure what he means. That's okay. We at least have got the fact that previously he has told us that there's going to be a kingdom. And so in verses 35 through 40, James and John step up to the plate. You're kind of surprised it's not Peter. 
Because usually Peter's the one that sticks his foot in his mouth. But no, this time James and John beat him to the punch. And look at what it says, verse 35. Now James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Sounds like children when they go to mom and dad asking something they know they ought not to be asking. Well, they go ahead because he says, well, what do you want me to do for you? Now, before I go on, uh, Andy was noting a moment ago that in my Bible, uh, I mark things, I highlight things. So you can see there, there's brown and there's yellow and there's pink and there's orange. And you say, well, what is the significance of the, co- of the colors that are marked in your Bible? Nothing. In other words, do I always use brown for a particular thing? No. But what I do do is I will mark something, and then if I see the same word or the same phrase again, I'll mark it again so I can see them very quickly. Well, what I want to show you, because it's really powerful, in verse 36, Jesus asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? Then look in verse 51. And Jesus said to him, blind Bartimaeus, What do you want me to do for you? Same exact question. That's not by accident, by the way. Now, we're about to see that James and John say, oh, we want the best seat in the kingdom on the left throne and the right throne. That's what we want. What did blind Bartimaeus say? Teacher, I just want to see. Blind Bartimaeus is already further down the road of discipleship than James and John who have spent three years with our Lord. Well, look at what it says there in verse 37. They said to him, grant to us one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, if you take notes or mark your Bible, you ought to write beside it Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 because over in the gospel of Matthew Jesus has told the disciples that they are going to sit uh, uh, they're going to be truly I say to you in the new world when the son of man sits on his glorious throne you all will who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and so James and John have already been told that in the kingdom The 12 of you will be sitting around, minus Judas, of course, will be sitting around uh, the throne in your own thrones, and they say, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. Sitting on a throne in your inner circle is good, but it's not good enough. One of us wants to be on your left, and one of us wants to be on your right. I mean, guys, are they not getting it or what? Now, they're right. He is going to sit on a throne in his kingdom. They got that part right. By the way, they completely missed, though, how it comes. By the way, it's just an aside. When Jesus does come into his glory on the cross at Calvary, there is someone on his left and there is someone on his right. But it's not two apostles. It's two thieves. And so Jesus, being the wonderful, kind, gracious teacher that he is, responds there in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. And then here come a couple of questions. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be 
baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Now, let me stop. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the cup is often a word that is used to refer to someone's destiny, uh, to where their life is going. But it's also the case that the image of the cup in the Old Testament is also used many times of the wrath of God that is poured out in judgment. And Jesus understands very well that the cup of God's wrath and God's judgment is going to be poured out on him. That's why I believe many times people are confused when they go to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Lord, if this, what, cup can pass from me, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And people think that Jesus is fearful of the pain and the agony and the suffering of Calvary. And I don't believe that at all. I think he knew that on the cross he would bear in his body the wrath of God in your place and in my place. He knew that on the cross, what were the first words that came from his mouth? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first verse of Psalm 22. And so he was not fearful of the pain. In fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't the pain that he feared, but the separation from his father as he bore in his body the full weight of God's judgment upon sin. And so he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized? And by the way, the word baptized occurs no less than six times in these verses. Of course, the word baptism, baptizo, means to immerse or submerge, but sometimes it has the idea of being flooded or even being overwhelmed. And I think that's the significance here. And so let me add commentary as I walk through it one more time. Verse 38, are you able to drink the judgment that I am going to drink or be overwhelmed with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And again, they don't get it. They're out of touch. They said to him in verse 39, we're able And Jesus, again, being so kind and so gracious, says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. It's the Father's business who will sit on my left and sit on my right. By the way, we know that what Jesus said to James and John is true. In the book of Acts, James will be the first of the apostles to be martyred. And of course, John, at the end of his life alone, almost certainly the other disciples were dead by now, is exiled to the island of Patmos where he would suffer for the sake of his Savior. And so there is a baptism for these two men, and there is a cup for these two men, not of the the magnitude that our Lord drank and that our Lord was overwhelmed. And brothers and sisters, again, I don't know what God's plan is for your life or my life, but I do know that if we're going to count the cost and consider the challenge of following Jesus It's going to involve some suffering. It's going to involve some opposition. It's going to involve some misunderstanding. Southeastern is 
Andy said a moment ago, is known for its love and passion for the Great Commission. And many, many times, more times than I want to count, I've had students come to my office and sit down with me and share with me a dilemma in their lives. They, they'd come to Southeastern to get an education, to, to get the MDiv or the THM or a, a, a MA, and then go back. In many cases, so many of them, so many of them think and anticipate that they'll go back home, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, the Carolinas, and they'll, they'll serve the Lord in a church like this near mom and dad. And then they get bit by the Great Commission bug. And they become aware of the fact that there's still more than 6,500 unreached people groups in the world today. That close to 3.5 billion people, almost half of the world's population, have either no access to the gospel or very limited access to the gospel. In other words, even today, with all of our wealth, all of our technology, all of our ability to move around the world, even today, almost half the world's population, now listen to me, they will be born, they will grow up, they will die. They will go to hell. And they never even one time heard a clear presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And they get overwhelmed by that reality. God gets a hold of their heart and they decide, I'm not going back home. I'm going to the nations. I'm going to an unreached people group, plant my life there to share the gospel and build churches. And I'm so excited for them and yet I realize there's something going on. And so I say to them, well, what's the issue? And you would think that the happiest people in the world, especially if mom and dad are believers, would be mom and dad. But they're not. And all of a sudden, they're getting enormous pressure from mom and dad, and they're told things like this. Well, we didn't expect that. We didn't pray for that. Are you sure you know what you're doing? And then here's the, here's the, the knockout blow from mom and dad. You're going to take my grandchildren away from me? Now, I could understand a lost mom or dad saying that. But I really struggle to comprehend how a Christian mom and dad can say that. And actually, believe it or not, I've had not many times, but I've had a few parents actually say something like that to my face. And I try to be like Jesus and not like Danny. And so I, I try to be kind. And, but I, I will say something like this. Well, can I just ask you one question? Would you rather your children and grandchildren live across the street, out of God's will and even hating the things of God, or somewhere halfway around the world, loving the Lord Jesus, serving Him, and being in the center of his will. Now, sometimes I get sophisticated parents who say, well, well why can't they be across the street and in God's will? Which is a pretty good question. The, the only problem is, that's not your call. That's his. Now, I want to tell you something. I cannot think of anything that a parent 
could be more honored and blessed with than to have their children in the center of God's will somewhere around the world telling people the good news who've never heard it. Yes, it's not only the, the, the ones who go who have to count the cost. So does mom and dad. So do grandparents. And there is a challenge to being a servant. But number three, you must consider the conflict in being a servant. Look at what the Bible says there in verse 41. Now, when the ten, the other ten disciples heard it, they began to be indignant. They, they were ticked off at James and John. Now, you say, well, Danny, they were more spiritual. No, they weren't. They were just mad they had not thought of it first. Now, they did enjoy the fact that Jesus kicked their backside in his response. But I strongly suspect that they're like, well, why weren't we quick to the draw to ask Jesus to be in the primary seat on his left and on his right? And so they're mad. They're angry. They're fussing and fighting again, which, by the way, they also did in chapter 9 and chapter 8. But look at what Jesus does again, being so kind and gracious. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him. And he said to them, now watch this, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Now, I'm not here to teach your Greek lesson. I hate it when people who know Greek and Hebrew talk about it to those who don't. It's just like going to the doctor when you say, well, doctor, what's wrong? And he gives you words that are about this long. And finally you say, look, doc, I just need to know one thing, dead or living. I mean, up or down. I, I don't, don't give me all this stuff. I just, just talk like in English, please, in, a, in normal language. So I just want to show you, though, in that phrase there, lord it over. It's two Greek words. Kata, which means down, and kurios, which means lord. So they lord it down. We would say today, they take their thumb and they push people down. They take their position and their privilege and their power and they use it for themselves and not for others. Now, that may be the way the world works. That is not the way Christ works. Oh, you know that those who have position and power and influence, they lord it over others and their great ones, they exercise authority. Kata curios. They take their authority and they again push people down. So yes, that's the way the world works. In recent years, and in, in recent months, I've been in conversations with people about people in power and, and position and, and prestige and how we need to be careful not to just throw everything away. And I can kind of, sort of understand that argument, but not really. Not really. Because it's not the way the kingdom works. It's not the way Jesus measures greatness in his world. You say, how do you know that? Read the rest of the story. Verse 43, it shall not be so among you. God's people don't lord it over. God's people don't use their authority over others. In fact, very interestingly, because of some conversations I've had, I, I begin to look into the Bible, especially the New Testament, when the Bible talks about power you know what the Bible teaches us? We're only to glory in one power. The power of the cross. If you find another place where it's different, I would be very glad to hear it. But no, it's, it's not there. You see, here's how the kingdom of God works. 
Whoever would be great among you must be your diakonos, your deacon, your servant. You're a table waiter. And whoever wants to be first among you, no, you'll be a doulos. You will become a slave of all. In other words, the conflict in being a servant is it goes completely at odds with the way this world thinks. No, I don't seek power. I give it away. I don't seek prestige. I look to see who I can serve. Why? This leads us to our conclusion. You must consider Christ when being a servant for even the Son of Man. Now, you say, Son of Man, Danny. That just means He's Son of God, His deity, Son of Man, He's humanity. No, that's not what it means at all. Son of Man is a messianic title that is found in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, you see Daniel has this glorious vision. He says, I saw one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. Commentary, God the Son is coming to God the Father. And what does God the Son get from God the Father? An eternal, everlasting kingdom and dominion over all things. That's what Son of Man is about. So even this apocalyptic figure in Daniel 7, he came not to be served. Oh my goodness, why? Because he came to serve. And how did he come to serve? He came to give his life as a payment, as a ransom for many. Now, what John does, I mean, what Jesus does here is unbelievable. We already know from Mark's gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, okay? In the first century Jewish way of thinking, that meant this glorious kingly uh, figure who would destroy Rome, establish the eternal kingdom for Israel, and that is what Messiah meant to them. And Jesus takes their idea of Messiah and turns it on its head. And what he does is he weds the Isaiah chapter 53, servant of the Lord, to the son of man of Daniel 7. And he says, in essence, am I this glorious apocalyptic figure who is going to receive an eternal kingdom forever? Yes, absolutely. But how will I get it? By being the suffering servant of the Lord. And you see, brothers and sisters, we are never more like Jesus than when we serve. We're never more like our Savior and our Master when we sacrifice for the blessing and the benefit of others. In other words, like our Lord, we're not looking to see what we can get. Rather, we're always looking to see what we can give. Francis Schaeffer is a hero to me. He taught me that you could be a Christian and still not check your brain at the door. In other words, as I was working through my master's degree and then getting my Ph.D. from a secular university in in Texas, uh, Christians, as you would expect, were often mocked and made fun of and ridiculed. And basically, how can you be in a graduate program like this and uh, still believe that fairy tale stuff in the Bible? And Francis Schaeffer wrote a great book, How Should We Then Live? 
Uh, he wrote a book, He is There. Uh, he is not silent. But he said this about, interestingly, leadership. And he's not known as a uh, guru of leadership. He's, he's known as a philosopher, as an apologist, as a Christian worldview thinker. But he said this, and I think it's a really good way to close our study this morning. Jesus says, we are to take the lowest spot, but we like to take the higher. And we have a lovely rationalization for doing so. Because every time we take a bigger place, we say that we can have greater influence for Christ. But this is not the Lord's way. This is very humbling for me. Leadership is not to be sought. Leadership is to be waited for. And to the extent that we want power among men, to that extent, we are in the flesh, and the Holy Spirit does not have His place in our lives. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life for ransom for many. That is why Jesus came. I believe that is why you and I are to go. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the powerful words of the Gospel of Mark that remind us that true greatness in your kingdom is found in being a servant, even a slave. And Lord, slaves have no right but to obey and please their master. And Lord, how I thank you that we have such a glorious and wonderful master in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to pay in full the penalty of our sin. He came to die the death that we all deserved to die, but now we don't have to because He paid it all. He paid it all. And so, Lord, we want to follow in His footsteps, having repented of our sin and put our faith and trust in Him and Him alone. Lord, we want to follow Him by dying to ourselves and taking up our cross and following Him. And so, Lord, if you sent your Son to serve, I believe you send us to serve. And we go, Lord, with the attitude and the disposition of a servant, even a slave, just like Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.